Welcome back to Marvel's Voices. I'm your host, Angelique Rocher, and today we have an incredible episode all about the representation of disability in superhero comics. First up, for an historical and global perspective on disability representation, I'm talking to Professor Jose Alanis, who actually teaches at the University of Washington. Jose studies the representation of disability in comics, specifically from the 1950s through the 1990s, ending with the introduction of the Americans with Disabilities Act. He wrote the 2014 book, Death, Disability, and the Superhero, The Silver Age and Beyond, and co-edited Uncanny Bodies, Superhero Comics and Disability in 2019. Welcome to Marvel's Voices, Jose. I'm really excited to talk about superheroes and disability and how that has evolved throughout comics. Let's start off with you, though. How did you get into comic books? Oh, it happened a long time ago. I was a kid in uh, the Rio Grande Valley of South Texas uh, along the Mexico border, and I was the son of migrant farm workers. My mother was a first-generation immigrant. And uh, my first language was Spanish. And really, comics, uh, sometime around 1974, my mother bought me an issue of The Defenders and of Marvel 2-in-1. I believe it was Marvel 2-in-1 number five. They were both drawn by Sal Pashema, who's one of my favorite artists. And uh, they, as far as I can remember, they opened up a fabulous and unimaginable universe for me. And they were extremely important in rewiring my brain, in helping me to learn English, helping me to write and read English, and also to um, really differentiate myself and, and my own identity from that of my parents. I mean, it might sound kind of strange to that, but people who are second generation maybe understand what I'm talking about. Like you needed something of your own. I love the fact that I chose to wear a Defender shirt, which, <laughs> while not the original Defenders, oh. you're probably referencing still, you know, in the family. I love the Defenders, yeah. What was it about those particular characters that resonated with you? Well, I'm mainly talking about the 1970s version, uh, particularly written by Steve Gerber in that brilliant, brilliant run of his. The Defenders are, were really conceived as a group of people who don't belong in groups. It's a bunch of loners and outsiders. Doctor Strange, the Submariner, the Hulk, and the Silver Surfer. And so these are all people who basically, by definition, would never think of, of gagging up. And, and I like the idea of the Defenders in that there is a lot left unspoken. Like, why do they stay together? There's this kind of, like you were saying, kind of a hodgepodge sort of conception for these heroes. And now later on, right, when they start having Valkyrie or, or Nighthawk or these other kind of characters, it becomes a little bit more of, an, of a family that you can sort of understand on some level. But the whole point about the Defenders is that they're kind of unstable and the, the membership is always changing. You mentioned earlier that there are people who eventually put down comics, but you kept reading. What made you stay? Well, I mean, there's a real affective kind of emotional power to superhero comics that is maybe the, the best explanation for why I stuck with them. They gave me a kind of emotional life and a way of finding meaning in a chaotic world. And, and for me, the big example is the Incredible Hulk. I have a brother 
who is older than me, but who from very early on was um, a juvenile delinquent and who had a lot of trouble with the law. And, and he often had anger management issues and he spent time in prison. And it's something that I've I'm obviously tried to understand him. And, and as a child, you know, it, the, the Incredible Hulk gave me a way to sort of understand on some level, like how someone that, that you love, who's even, you know, your own blood, could suddenly turn into this person you don't recognize, who gets so angry and would get so embittered and so violent. So I, I've never doubted the power of these stories to really have an impact on, on my own sense of a of the world, really, and of even of my own family and, and how to how to always maintain kind of empathy, even if you don't quite understand why someone is doing what they're doing. Yeah. Wow. The thing about characters is that you never know how they touch people's lives and you never know how a story is going to impact anyone. And again, I just never, never thought of giving them up. It is true that I no longer collect comics series consistently, and I haven't done that for about 10 years. I'll pick up a series like when, when Ta-Nehisi Coates started doing The Black Panther, I picked that up just because I was fascinated by what he was going to do with the character. And, you know, the kind of comics that I tend to read more now are the stuff that I do for my research, whether it's... Eastern European comics, which are not superheroes by and large, or whether it is stuff that's related to disability. Well, and and that's a good segue. The era of comics you write about actually ends about the 1990s, around the same time the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed, 1990. How do you feel the Americans with Disabilities Act changed comics? And do you think that the ADA had any impact on representation in art or how we really looked at disability as a whole as a country? Yeah, I mean, I think that the ADA, very much like the civil rights activism and movements and legislation that comes out of the 60s and 70s for various communities, it had a very similar, I I would say, impact just the sense that now people have to, you know, think about it, like people who might not have thought of, of disabled folks as, uh, you know, needing accommodations, you know, requiring some uh, a ramp or requiring access to a job, right? There was just a lot of discrimination and there, there still is. So just kind of putting this stuff on people's radar, I think first and foremost, that that really, that is really the real breakthrough in many ways of the law for most people. Now we can start talking about, well, this is now legally required, right? If you're going to make a new building, do some sort of renovation, you have to start designing it with more than just, you know, people who can walk in mind. In art and culture, and in comics in particular, I think you start seeing, along with other forms of, of human diversity and human variety, you start seeing more and more images of people with disabilities. Now, in my book, Death, Disability, and the Superhero, The Silver Age and Beyond, I'm mainly looking at material from the late 50s to the early 90s, as you said. But it's really since then that we have the mainstreaming of disability to the extent that it has occurred as we... Uh, catalog in the book that I co-edited with Scott T. Smith, Uncanny Bodies, Superhero Comics and Disability, a lot of that new representation of people with disabilities overlaps and intersects with other identities, things like disability and blackness, disability and femininity, disability and, and queerness. Representation and diversity are things that are ever evolving, including, as you said, not just race and gender, but disability and the intersections of those. Talk to me about how representation of disabilities has evolved. Representation means two different things when we're talking about disability. Getting yourself seen, you know, having a person with a, in a wheelchair appear in a McDonald's ad or something. 
So just kind of having yourself represented or representing yourself, even more importantly. And then secondly is, is political representation, getting laws passed that are going to be of benefit to your community. So disabled people historically have had a lot of representation, but it's been representation from outside, representations of disabled people as pathetic or as miserable, as wretched, or as evil, right? And in superhero comics, going back to the beginning, it was usually villains who would appear as, as disabled people, including the very first supervillain, the ultra-humanite, who is in a wheelchair. But now, right, I think we're in this very different cultural moment where we can start seeing more of those positive representations and as well as more self-representations that are going on. And then, of course, that goes along with the, the expansions in, uh, in political representation. Okay, so why is it important to look at comics and Marvel and superheroes when you're looking at disability representation? What was Marvel doing in this era from the 1950s to the 1990s that was worth noting? Ultimately, it comes down to the fact that superhero stories are about bodies, right? It's, it's so much about bodies. And historically, it's about white male bodies and certainly a, a kind of idealized physiques. And, but there are bodies that are often represented in very strange and bizarre and really problematic ways. And it's, if anything, it is Marvel and the early Silver Age of the 1960s that really starts to push back on that narrative. They were actually violating some of those rules, if you, if you will, for the genre. Many of the superheroes were people with disabilities in their, in their secret alter egos. They weren't just background characters or supporting characters. They were actually Tony Stark. They were Matthew Murdock. Right. They were uh, Donald Blake. Now, of course, this was being done for particular kind of dramatic reasons. Right. I think even Stan Lee himself has said that, oh, yeah, this, this is an easy way to get sympathy for the character is to make him or her disabled. So I'm not saying that it was done for necessarily politically innocent kind of reasons or, or for reasons of inclusion per se. But that was the effect. Right. And we know this also in terms of how they were representing African-Americans or other people who are not white over the course of the 60s in the crowd scenes, right? When there's like a big fight going on between some superheroes in the, in the background, you'll see people that are gawking or something. Over the course of the 60s, Kirby and other artists were adding more and more people who were recognizably people of color. And again, they would also throw in more and more people who were disabled. So it was partly a marketing strategy, of course, to differentiate themselves from other companies like DC. But it was also something that was a real innovation. And it had, like I said, real effects for people and how they were seeing themselves represented, people who were in those communities. Okay, so what are some specific examples of how representation of disabilities has evolved in comics? Well, I think we could start with someone like Matt Murdock, Daredevil, who I think is, is also an extraordinary creation because so much of that series in the 60s with Stan Lee and Gene Colan's run in particular is that he is basically, you know, living a life that is, you know, very full. He's a professional. He's a lawyer. He gets to help people. He gets to live a very fulfilled existence. And yet he's blind. And, and, and they never try to make you forget that, right? Now, a lot of that, of course, is that he is passing as blind because, of course, he has these superpowers that allow him to do things no other normal human can do. But a lot of it then gets into these fascinating stories about how we regard the blind, what, what we think of as the limitations of the blind, and, and then ways in which the series kind of challenges that. But there are two sides to the coin, right? You talked about it a little bit when it comes to villains and disability. And a lot of times, unfortunately, disability has been more linked to villains than it's been to superheroes. That's right. And, and again, it was Marvel that kind of inverted that, right, in the early 60s. 
with this whole new wave of, of these, these superheroes. That's why I think the Silver Age is so important. And what Marvel was doing was really a revolution. But you're right. I mean, I have a plan to write basically a trilogy. So Death, Disability, the Superhero, the Silver Age and Beyond would be the middle part. <laughs> then the next one, which I'm writing now, is basically everything post-1993. So basically the contemporary era. But then the very first one would be the Golden Age. And, and you know, the more I think about material to write about from that era, basically 1938 to the late 50s, I'm basically going to be writing about supervillains. They're basically all supervillains. There was really no way, by and large, you see, you know, the Red Skull, or you see the Joker, or you see so many of these figures who are uh, malevolent and whose physical difference, physical deformity is a sign of their inner evil. And that's a very, very old, really gothic way of representing human beings who are physically different, physically or cognitively different. So it, it is a, sadly, I think, a part of the legacy of superheroes, just as racism and, and other forms of discriminatory representations are a part of the legacy of superhero comics and comics in general in this country. So it is, it is something that I think we've largely gotten beyond, by and large. You can certainly, obviously, still see some problematic stuff now in, in the culture in general, I would say. Maybe a, a, the best example, the one that's become kind of a cliche, really, is the fact that you keep seeing people winning Academy Awards for playing disabled characters when they themselves are not disabled. In fact, that that's the cynical take on that is that if you want to win an Academy Award, like play a disabled person. And of course, it, it goes without saying that it tends to be not disabled people who are playing these parts themselves by and large. You've done a lot of writing about representation in comics in other countries as well. Are there any differences culturally or practically in the ways disabilities are portrayed in other countries? Well, I, I could speak most uh, competently to the situation in Russia. Comics are very, very new. Historically speaking, in Russia, they didn't really have a comics culture up until really 15 years ago, I guess, in any kind of recognizable way, partly because under the Soviet Union, comics were considered a foreign, subliterate trash. They were highly politicized objects. But to answer your question, by and large, I think the ways in which people represent disability has a lot to do with, I think, the, the Russian Orthodox Christianity's view of the disabled, which is that they are here on earth to suffer for the good of us all, that they're kind of there to bear the brunt. So we have to help them, we have to pity them, but they're there as kind of almost like people who are closer to God that we need to um, to support, but not support by giving them jobs or, or, or you know, or, or treating them as full human beings, but more just to give, uh, you know, charity to. And this is something that I think we also have or have had for a long time in American culture that's maybe started to change, partly because of things like the ADA, which, which are mandating a certain level of equal treatment, not, not enough, but to a certain degree. And um, there is no equivalent to the ADA in Russian culture, and I don't know that there will be anytime soon. But then you have this whole other strain, people who are doing autobiographical comics about living with their disabilities, and who do it, I think, in very recognizable and very Western and very... Um, inclusive and, and I think empowering ways. Well, I think it's all very interesting just thinking about it socially, politically, how we look at disability and how disability is portrayed. For you in the work and the study that you've done, do you feel like comics are going in the right direction? Well, sure. I mean, I think generally, I mean, it's, it, there's always problems and there's always things that come up. 
But I think in general, the culture, right, is becoming more open. And as we know, there's also a big backlash because that's that happens too. But I think this um, idea, right, that that people who are not of a particular class, gender, race, sexual orientation, whether they're cis, that all of these things are being put up now for discussion, that folks of, of a variety of backgrounds, right, are able to or should be allowed or be able to, just by being human beings, to enjoy a kind of full citizenship. And I think that that is something that is being very much reflected in the comics. It becomes an issue, I suppose, in terms of how we handle that backlash. Oh, thanks, Jose. Honestly, I couldn't agree more. And I really appreciate you coming on Marvel's Voices. Thank you so much, Jose, for joining me. Next, I'm talking to Day Al-Muhammad. Day is an author, filmmaker, and disability policy strategist. She has worked on disability rights advocacy for over 15 years and is passionate about representation in media. She's also a writer in her own right, with short stories, poetry, comics, essays, and novels under her belt. All right. So how do you go from doing policy to doing what you do now? Because you're an author, you're a filmmaker, you're I mean, we just said policy strategist that's in there. But like, how do you end up doing the rest of it? And you're a podcaster. So we all are like so many different things. Right. And you end up being pushed one way or another. And it's like you should you should get a real job. You know, think about all those parents. You should be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. Right. I mean, I'm a lawyer. I was That's not what I do, though. (laughs) (laughs) So it it starts there. And then there's the the other side of like, what are the things that you love and you enjoy doing? And long term, I was like, yeah, I've always my first comics and it was complete accidental run. It had been we were overseas at the time. So stuff was a few years late as it gets there. And the first thing I picked up was Chris Claremont's run on X-Men. And it was the Phoenix Saga. So if you picture that as the first thing you ever read. Right. Wow. The storytelling was amazing. And so so it, it, it kind of sticks with you. And it's weird. It has stuck with me. And so when given the opportunity, I'm like, I'm going to lean into the creative side. So fantasy, science fiction, superheroes are things that I like to write. And then I, I also love history, writing some stuff that was historical related and ended up doing some film. And I actually had my pilot just came out from PBS yesterday. So. I just did a little dance for you for that pilot <laughs> on, on that PBS thing. And for those of you listening, the reason you are explaining that you did a little dance is because I can't see you do that little dance because I'm actually blind. That's where we were going. Um, ah. I did want to talk about like one of the things that I love about the work we do is that it is we are passionate about it. Right. There is a certain type of passion we have being connected and whether it is the storytelling we love, whether it is the stories we gravitate to, it really does connect to us and touch us in a personal way. And so your love of storytelling and your love of being a storyteller and being a policy strategist comes from a very real and very personal place. Right. Absolutely. I think. People always think about policy and law and stuff as being kind of cold and unemotional. But if you think about it, the stories about why you want to change it is always about the personal. It's about who got hurt. It's it's about who got left behind. 
you know, and it's about who do we want to make sure has just as much of an opportunity as the next guy. And those are personal. And the same thing is sometimes it's hard to get that through when it comes to legalese and all that kind of language. And the thing is stories are what shape us. Stories are what define and decide the future. The very fact that our space program, if you walk in there and talk to any engineer at NASA, they will tell you how much Star Trek influenced them, you know, the science and the things like that, because guess what? Art and storytelling goes first. I could not agree more with you. And I love when I hear about Nichelle Nichols and how Nichelle Nichols influenced some of, well, most of, I wouldn't even say some of, most of the first, regardless of gender, black astronauts to go into space. Michelle Nichols actually was like recruited to be like a spokesperson for NASA. Like they understood they got that art and storytelling and imagination and dreaming were so powerful. Right. And I think that's something that I'm so excited to have you on the show to talk about today. What does it mean to give people the, the ability, the possibility to dream, to imagine, to be able to think broader than what we walked into? And that's race that's gender, that's physical ability, that's mental ability, that's dealing with all of these different things that we look at. And that's the power of story, right? You were talking about the Phoenix Saga. One, where were you? Like, talk to me about being overseas, what this life was, and what was it about the Phoenix Saga for you that dragged you in and sucked you in and now you are still here loving comic books. <laughs> um, sure. So uh, I actually am an immigrant to the U.S. I grew up over – I was born and raised in Bahrain. So it's a small island off the coast of Saudi Arabia. It's a beautiful island. I've actually been there. <gasps> wow. Okay. That's kind of awesome. <laughs> Very few people have. So Yes. But yeah, but I remember it was in the grocery store. I was sighted until I was 17. So that impacts some of the things. But it was there and the, the colors and the cover. And it just, uh, what is this? I don't know what this thing is. I'd never seen a comic before. It was my first real thing. And I remember begged my mom, could you get this? And I don't remember. It wasn't the beginning. It was closer to the end. But it was just, what struck me most was the humanity of the characters right? You get caught up in the, in the idea of the superheroes and the powers and whatever, but these were like people and the personal and emotional struggle that comes from that, which is, I think, what makes that arc particularly powerful was the emotional arc, which is why I kind of, those are the stories that are the ones that stick with me. Especially when you think about this idea that you walked into the Chris Claremont era of a lot of these characters, right? Whereas, you know, we've had guests on the show who's like, no, like I picked it up when like, I picked up the 60s versions like it was a very different team, right? Versus someone picking it up during the Grant Morrison run or the Wheaton run or picking up Gen X like, you know, Terry Blass, who was on the show. It changes how you view these characters because you make a personal connection with them in a very real way. So you're dragged in. When do you move to the States? When does life change for you? Yeah, I actually moved here in the 90s to go to college. I did keep reading and and I will say most of my stuff has been, I tend to like the ensemble casts. I like the idea of everyone having a bit of a story and a piece of how it goes and the explorations of all of that. I branch out here and there with some of the other pieces, particularly later on as my vision is lesser. I'm like, okay, let me look at this daredevil a little bit more. And I'm like, I, I want to know more about him. And some of the other characters that are a part of that. But I still always went back to kind of the team element. And I think part of that is for all the darkness and angst and a little bit of the melodrama, the underlying theme of hope within that specific series is what always drove me back to it. 
you can't get away from that because that's the underlying theme behind all of it. That's Xavier's dream, right? If you look at the idea of parallels in our world, that need for that kind of coexistence is still present. But the idea of it's there, but it's not something that's going to come peacefully. And it's not going to come by bending away from your your own moral values. This is something that is is very unique to a lot of the stories you've mentioned, like whether it is the X-Men or Daredevil, honestly. I mean, Daredevil can get really dark. Yes. And it and such perjury, I think I've never quite got into it. It's part of the reason out of all the runs, my favorite has been the Mark Wade version. Right. Talk to me about this. I don't think I've ever <laughs> You might be the first person. First of all, I love Mark Wade, but that has not been the first Daredevil run that has come out of many people's mouths. It is not. But there was a lightness that was brought back to the character that I think we needed to have because after a certain while, there's only so far you can go down that darkness rabbit hole. So all of my authority is now out the window. People say, you liked that run? You're out. And I'm like, okay, that's I don't fine. know. I think that makes you an even bigger expert. People are like, Mark Wade wrote a daredevil? Yeah. I have his number one. And one of the, it's a very small thing. And this is where authors can make a difference because I got the copy. He signed it in Braille. He actually had a Braille stamp made up to autograph. And I absolutely love that. And I bought the floppy of that. And that's at the point in time now where I can tell you, no, I can't actually read the floppies anymore because I pull those things out. I have a magnoscope, have my wife read bits of it to me so I know what's going on. But yeah, so that's a, a big part of it. My heart is like busting open because because there's someone out there that goes, wait, there are Braille stamps in which you can sign things with. I didn't know that was a thing. And that's the thing that I love about the work you do, there is a need to continue forward education on what does it mean to make these stories that we know and love accessible to everyone. And that doesn't just mean accessible and like you'll have a copy that you can read, but also like that our stories make sense. And it's those little small details that change the genuineness of a story and make someone feel like there's that genuine authenticity that goes into a story that makes them so rich and amazing. What does the portrayal of disability in comics reflect about our society right now? Like at this moment, where are we? So I have to admit, I have more recent statistics on film. And I can tell you, at least as far as film and television, disability representation is less than 2% on screen. That's it. There actually are no statistics for off screen because nobody has actually done it. So the idea is, all right, so if we had to look at every character, and let's just talk purely about comics, there are two ways to do it. One is representation. So how many characters are there with disabilities? And then actually let's say three. Two, how are those disabilities portrayed? Positive, negative, negligible. That's one of my fusses with Daredevil and his abilities, like how much does it negate disability? And the ones who've done a really good job are the ones who show, who do show the limitations. Then the third part I'm talking about is who is telling the stories? There's a lot of nuance in the way people live, right? For years and years, if you look at the art in comic books, novels, everywhere, you see those big old clunky hospital wheelchairs with the metal arms and the high sides. And the thing is, theoretically, those are made in such a way to be pushed by somebody else. So if you were to try to do it yourself, you're going to do injury to your shoulder. So for people who actually use a wheelchair in day-to-day life, it's going to be built differently where it's going to be lighter. It's going to be more maneuverable so they can get around. Or you can have the other end, like people talk about motorized wheelchairs. And and our usual assumption is, wow, that motorized wheelchair, they must have much, much less function. I'm like, 
maybe, or I'm like, you go to a college campus, how big is a college campus? Would you want to push your way all around a college campus? And God forbid, you're going to one that's on a hill anywhere or in the middle of winter. In that case, guess what? A motorized one or a scooter would be so much easier and would make so much more sense. And again, it's not going to look like your hospital chair. It's going to be built for you, which is why you'll see people with pink ones, somebody with sparkles, people who put obnoxious crude stickers on them because it's a it's a part of who and what you are. And like I said, this is all about identity. And if we go to the, the Center for Disease Control, CDC statistics, one in four Americans have a disability, right? One in four, visible or not. So the assumption is if that's how many of us exist, then why are we not seeing that in our comics, in our books, in our television shows, in our theaters? You know, main character, side character, background character, where's the waiter with one arm? I love the ridiculous example of uh, the last Jurassic Park movie. You know, the, all the dinosaurs are loose and they're eating all the people in the park. You ever see anybody with a disability in that park? I have as much right to be eaten by a dinosaur as everybody else. I want to be eaten by a dinosaur. You know, that disaster scene, you know, on the splash pages in the comic where the cities are crumbling. I want to see the little guy with the wheelchair getting his ass out of there because, holy crap, I am not going to be smashed by a building. The rest of y'all, too bad. I've got my power chair. We're gone. I mean, it's also New York. If you really, again, back to your statistics, population wise. Yeah. That is what the world outside our window looks like as we look at this. Do you feel like there are places where comics and TV and movie and our superhero stories have gotten it right? Some. It's hard because I think many have struggled with the nuance because many do not have people with disabilities in the writing room, right? We see that the big push when it comes to many marginalized communities, the idea is like you're missing nuance in the storytelling because you're doing this. I, I think part of it is also looking for the things you get right helps shape the way the world, right? There was a study done years and years ago. It was shortly after the ADA came out, so 91 or so, that basically said, how do you feel about people with disabilities? Do you know more than 50% of folks said they are actually afraid of and anxious around people with disabilities and would prefer not to talk to them? And um, somebody did a follow-up said, what were ways to reduce that kind of stigma? And one was hang out with people with disabilities. You spend time with somebody, you get to realize they're a regular person. It's not that big a deal. The second most effective way to address that stigma was through media. Like if you see them as real people and they're portrayed that way, that actually will also impact how you view and treat folks. So when it's done right, it actually, believe it or not, makes the world a better place. And in some ways, I think the superhero and comics genre does help do that because you're already putting them in, in a little bit of a super kind of a category that lets people kind of relate and connect and engage with them, which is also why, like I said, it's the human disability moments that I think make it more real and show not just the limitation, but show the humanity that also makes a closer connection. Actually, I'll give you two examples. I have two, good and bad. So there's a very, very old I want to say it was Spider-Man or it was, it was a spinoff of it. And it's a, it's a scene with Melody Kusuma Komodo and she's in a battle uh, with Spider-Man and um, she ends up being transformed back and she cries out. And there's this moment, it's like, without my legs, I'm nothing because she's a double amputee. And that moment there is like, what? You're a perfectly full, complete person. And the, the idea of Kurt Connors himself with the idea of, I can't live this way. I'm going to have to change. It's, it is a problem. Now, if you want to talk about a positive one, and this is a more recent one. It's um, Secret Wars, Secret Love, and it's Misty Knight. 
this is this powerful, wonderful, amazing kick-ass woman with a bionic arm. And there's this scene of her with a dress in the mirror and the shoulder of the dress keeps falling down. And she looks in the mirror and we all know, I'm like, dude, she's kind of badass. She's awesome. She's amazing. But there's this moment she talks about how she feels ugly because the dress won't stay on her the way it should because it slides off the metal of her arm, you know? And the idea is while you have this disability and yes, you're this amazing detective and badass character, there's this very human moment of not feeling pretty. And I think that that's when you get it right, because I think all of us can go, I see it. I see you. I want more moments like that, that bring the disability close and it lets us exist as regular people. I love that. Within all of this and kind of taking a step back to your fandom, have you seen disability representation evolve through your life as a fan? And, you know, has it evolved for the better? Yeah, actually. I mean, it has grown and it has changed. We certainly have been moving away from cure tropes, right? The idea is we're going to cure the disability. You, you make an amazing disabled character and you get rid of it. What's interesting is Hawkeye, which is a character who gained a disability, basically lost 80% of his hearing. And I want to say the first time it happened was in the 80s, was retconned away. It was brought back in like 2011 or so. And it's one of the things where a disability was added, but rather than being cured away, which historically would be cured away and we will never see or hear from it again, the fact that it's even being considered to be brought back in tells you that we have already started changing the way we look at disability. The fact that Echo is actually being cast with a deaf Native American is massive. It means we're we're seeing a difference in who gets to play these roles, the fact that disability is a part of a story and can be a viable identity for a character. But those are some of the biggest uh, biggest things. The other one that I have seen also is Realm Media, which I know licenses many of the, they license some of the Marvel stuff, actually has, has hired some writers with disabilities. So I know that their Jessica Jones is written by a writer with a disability. And it was a, a Peggy Carter story that just came out this year by Elsa Sunnison who is deafblind, who's writing Peggy Carter. I'm like, you don't have to write a disabled character just because you have a disability. And so so seeing the hiring and the presence of folks with disabilities actually working on the characters, I think means we're also getting better because we're going to see layers to the stories that we wouldn't have had before. I love it. We've talked about some yays. What work do you still think needs to be done in terms of disability representation and storytelling to continue the progression forward that we've kind of like mentioned. Yeah. My big one, I'm always going to tell people one, hire, hire writers with disabilities in all stages and whether that's film, whether that's comics, where it's wherever. The other is just have more because everyone talks about, well, I did this and then we got yelled at. I'm like, you got yelled at because all the hopes and dreams of an entire community on this one character, which is not fair or right, but it is because it's the only one. So it's kind of one of those, well, I get to enjoy this one female character is the only one I get to have where the entire rest of the team are all men. So she has to represent any and all the women. And that's the same problem with disability. When you have one, they have to represent everyone. And so the more characters you have like that, the less pressure there is to get it perfect because you can't get it perfect. That's such a squishy answer, but I think that's kind of the way it is. I'm like, no, no, no. I want more. Dwayne McDuffie used to talk about, you know, you can have one black character. You might even have two, but the moment you have three, everybody calls it a black comic, right? And I think there's something deeply profound 
in the way society views things that he was really reflecting. And I think it's very accurate. So the idea is you can't have more than one. And I'm like, yeah, no, we should. We should have more than one character of color. We should have more than one woman. We should have more than one person with a disability. Because guess what? There are lots of us. And if we had to go one more thing, and this is my personal wish, which I have not really seen come out strongly yet in film or comics, I want to see someone circle back to, is the Morlocks, right? We can see the folks with the superheroes, the daring do and the saving the day. And I'm like, but then there's the other side. It's like, it's nice because those are the pretty people. But then there are the people whose stuff is ugly and it's messy and it's complicated and they live in the sewers and away from everybody because it's air quotes, easier that way. And I think the Morlocks are a great representation of that. And we actually have not really seen that brought out anywhere yet. Talk to me more about the Morlocks, because I think I've definitely, everyone's got a different opinion on the Morlocks. Absolutely. (laughs) Everybody has very strong. I love saying this statement out loud. Storm was leader of the Morlocks and the X-Men. You all sit down. Like, and, and mainly because that's a very important, like, I think, For me, as a fan, that was a very important moment where that was the first time in in my recollection as a reader, I was like, oh, man, wait, so we can work together. Everybody could we can make both of these things happen. People don't have to hide. That's not what happened. But like that was what my brain. It was that moment, right, where you could see the possibility just beyond the horizon and it it makes for the potential for so many places to go because of that. And um, it, it's the way we don't like uncomfortable things right now. We're going to stuff them away somewhere. We're going to pretend they don't exist or we're going to fight. So the Morlocks are a great representation of that. And like I said, when you have those moments in that story, in that one in particular, and also later on when they accuse her of you left us behind, you know, you pledge to be our leader and then you abandon us. It is, oh, wow, it's heartbreaking. And so, yeah, a lot of people can see the Morlocks as an analog of, of many things. But for me, it was an, it was an analog for disability in, in many ways. That's part of the reason I would love to see a return of that if we want to talk about a, an expansion of disability in storytelling. And granted, I think they can be many, many other things. But, but I think the Morlocks are an untapped um, storytelling space. But that's the beauty of storytelling, right? And I think that's where we kind of started this conversation is this idea of being able to tell a powerful story that touches and relates to people on different levels is what the power of comics and television and superheroes and this idea of who can be a superhero and what does that look like and what does that mean is just honestly and truly why I love this medium so much. I don't know what to say. Other than like, yes, yes. No, uh, actually, I do have an, an answer. It's like, it's our job to save the world, right? And that means every one of us, it's our job to save the world. And that doesn't matter whether it's race or economics or even disability. You still should have the chance to save the world. Thank you so much again to Jose and Day for joining me on Marvel's Voices. Make sure you tune in next week for my conversation with some of the really talented and amazing editors who are helping to put together some of our Marvel's Voices anthology series. 
Marvel's Voices is produced by me, Anjali Crochet, Alexis Williams, and Isabel Robertson. Our creative producer is Harry Goh. Our development manager is Brad Barton. Our production manager is Larissa Rosen. And our executive producer is Jill Duboff. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kamal Wainaina. <laughs>